So I can hear American Robins in the background. So, birding. Chickadees, black-capped chickadee. Birding, if you're not a birder, seems slow. Which is the state bird for my state of Massachusetts. I think it's the state bird for almost every other state as well. And this might look calm, tranquil, meditative. Song sparrow flying past. But what you're actually observing here is a sport. And the competition can be pretty intense. If you're going to do it on a national scale, on a continental scale, the money involved is vast. And I can't play that game. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a podcast about the natural world and how we use it. And today, we are delving into the subculture of extreme bird watching, where even when those involved say they are not in a competition, they are totally in a competition. One that leads them to crisscross the U.S. and Canada in airplanes and abandon their loved ones for weeks on end while they huddle on windblown Alaskan islands, hoping for bad weather to blow birds across the Pacific Ocean. In 2013, Neil Hayward was depressed. He had just left the biotech company that he had helped to start, but got kind of bored with. And he was getting over the end of a very serious relationship. And suddenly, he found himself doing a lot of birding. Because I, I had so much free time that year, I could end up staying. I could put in a lot of hours and wait for birds. And that always paid off. I waited for eight hours for a hummingbird in southeast Arizona. And uh, just as the sun was setting, this bird came in. And I'd been sitting outside through two thunderstorms and rain and uh, was about to give up and it was just the end of a, of a great day. If sitting still in the rain for eight hours doesn't sound like a great day to you, you are not ready to join the ranks of the nation's best birders. Neil, who lives in Boston, is one of the birding elite. Back in 2013, when he was feeling depressed, he decided to do something birders call a big year trying to see as many species of birds in the U.S. and Canada as he possibly could in 12 months. The first bird he saw that year? A lowly Canada goose. Things like sparrows. We get really excited about sparrows. All look very similar, and they're pretty drab. And to a non-birder, you might reasonably ask, you know, what, 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 what's all the fuss about? Um, but I think it's those birds that, are, that, that have some subtlety. Those are the ones that I think take more time and, and I guess, ultimately more rewarding. So let's just start with, why birds? I mean, why is bird watching so popular that it is actually an activity that we've all heard of? You don't hear about people going reptile watching, even though that is a thing. There are people who do this. It's called herping, as in herpetology. You know, in, in New England, there's only like five or six species of frog, so uh, it doesn't take very long to see them all. <laughs> um, whereas birding is like... Almost like the ideal number. You know, you could spend your whole life birding in North America and, and see new birds every year. Bird watching is big. Like 60 million people told the census they are bird watchers big. That's more than, say, they play basketball. And within that 60 million, there are, of course, varying degrees of enthusiasm. Some just do it in their backyards, but there are tens of millions of people who travel, who actually go places just to see different birds. These are people who keep lists, 
lists of birds they've seen in a given state, in a given country, in this year, and in their whole life. Lots of lists. And it's a different kind of person who's attracted to this variety of birding. And I think a lot of birders are probably, they like bringing order to the universe. And like collecting is one way of doing that, categorizing things. It's that same kind of mentality. Certain people end up birders. That was Eric Masterson. He's our go-to guide to birding culture. He works for the Harris Center for Conservation Education here in New Hampshire. I've seen characteristics and character traits um, prevalent amongst a lot of the birders that I know. You throw in a little bit of anxiety, throw in a little bit of um, obsessive compulsion, throw in a little bit of overachievement. I don't know, maybe my next career is going to be... some sort of psychoanalytic, uh, take a master's in psychoanalysis and figure out what it is that drives birders. But I re- I'm actually serious. I think there's something to that. You um, could open a practice and just focus on helping birders heal. Yeah, and I'd be broke. <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you how the extreme variety of elite birding works. Birds are on the wing. On the move, you never know what you'll see. Who knows? Maybe it'll be something from the other side of the Atlantic that blew its way over here in a storm. When a bird shows up outside of its typical range, birders notice. Now, this doesn't have to be a rare bird. It could be the most common bird ever. We could be talking about a robin. But if it shows up somewhere it's not supposed to be, suddenly it's a rarity. They call this a vagrant. And word starts to spread. Pagers start ringing, texts go out. Email list servers start to light up, blogs are updated. Instant communication. It doesn't matter what time of day, it doesn't matter what day of the week, birders drop everything. And, you know, you're talking about lying to the boss to take a a sick day, um, which, you know, it's people do. (laughs) Eric remembers two instances of this happening that were kind of extreme. Once in Ireland, when a rather common American bird showed up. There were jets that were chartered from Gen- as far away as Geneva for this thing. And privately, I just, privately, yeah, privately yeah, chartered jets. Yeah, privately chartered jets. Get a few people on, on, uh, in to get together to privately charter a flight. This bird generated, for that local economy, in, in the order of, of several hundred thousand euro. And this is not a European phenomenon. Earlier this year in New Hampshire, someone spotted a European red wing. Again, in Europe, this is a pretty common bird. More than 500 birders from all over the country dropped everything to fly here. Now, you picture Hollis High School. (laughs) Hollis High School, right? And it was actually, you know, we're we're in an era where if you have 500 middle-aged men with optics descending on a high school, it kind of rings alarm bells. Confused police officers, disgruntled neighbors, this is what extreme bird watching looks like. And this is the game that Neil Hayward decided he was going to play. For an entire year, he was glued to birding forums and listservs, waiting for rare bird alerts and chasing them whenever they arrived. Just as an example of the kind of behavior this leads to, once Neil heard that a blue-footed booby, which is normally a Mexican bird, had just landed in New Mexico. And I flew to Dallas. When I got on the plane in Boston, the bird was still being seen. Um, Numerous reports, lots of birders, very happy. And I got to Dallas at midnight and uh, turned my phone on and had a text message from a local birder saying that the bird had gone into rehab. It was emaciated. It wasn't eating. Even if Neil had been able to get in to see the bird, which he probably could not have, captive birds don't count. 
they have to be wild. So I had to get back on the plane that night, uh, four o'clock in the morning, flew back to Boston. Um, so obviously a upsetting trip, but obviously more upsetting for the booby. Neil spent tens of thousands of dollars on his big year and racked up 250,000 frequent flyer miles, spent many, many weeks away from home. And while Neil did his big year, he was also falling in love. Last year we did a trip down to Central America um, and we also stayed in this canopy tower that was just set above the canopy of the rainforest. And that's something that I never thought I would do in my life. Jerry Hayward is now Neil's wife. Now, this might strike you as a difficult way to live if you wanted to live with another person. But I think very often, significant others of birders become de facto birders themselves. But he's also taking me to a lot of trash dumps in New Jersey and Connecticut. Um, you know, yeah, those were some of our first dates, so. <laughs> As December rolled around in Neil Hayward's big year, he was only eight birds shy of the record of seeing 748 birds in a single year. He had spent weeks on end on weather-beaten Alaskan islands way out in the Bering Sea trying to spot Asian birds that had been blown off course. He'd been to the islands all the way out at the very end of the Florida Keys called the Dry Tortugas. He'd been to the Canadian Rockies, the American Rockies, the Santa Rita Mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, and countless wildlife refuges and state parks. But he says it was only right there at the very end of the year that he thought, hey... I might beat the record. I might see more birds in the U.S. and Canada in a year than anyone else has, ever. Um, the record was uh, 748. There's a couple of mallards uh, flying in front of us. Ah, see? He never stops birding. Um, so yeah, at the beginning of December, I was on um, sort of low 740s. And that was exciting. I mean, and I thought, there's a good chance that I won't beat the record. And then does that mean that this is all a failure? That, you know, that I didn't do what I was supposed to do? As those final 30 days are ticking down, Neil is traveling frantically from Texas way out into the Aleutian Islands, then to California and to Florida, and then way up north to Homer, Alaska, trying to find those last eight birds. Finally, he ends the big year on a boat off the coast of North Carolina, where he saw a great skua. At the end of the year, I, I, I hadn't beaten the record, and I was still waiting for a couple of those um, ABA firsts that had never been seen before to be accepted. And so this is the final thing you need to know about elite birding. If you had any doubt as to whether this is actually a sport, guess what? There are referees. Oh, the uh, Grand American Birding Association. <laughs> uh, they're the group that sort of manages the, the US and Canadian list. There are birds that count, and birds that don't. If you see a bird that's not on the list, you'd better have a camera with you. You'd better get a good photo. Neil saw a Eurasian sparrowhawk and spent all day trying to get a good picture by holding his iPhone camera up to his telescope lens. But ultimately, the ABA rejected his sighting. He also saw an American condor. Remember, condors had been nearly wiped out and then were released back into the wild, and their population was rebounding. But... According to the ABA rules, they hadn't been in the world for long enough. Ironically, the year afterwards, then they were added to the list. So if I'd done my big year in 2014, then I would have been able to count that. So birding, it's got rules, it's got 
fierce competition, though it's largely on the honor system, and it's got superstars. Eventually, Neil Hayward's big year was declared the biggest ever. A common red start and a rufous-necked wood rail that he saw were both accepted by the ABA, and he broke the big year record by one bird in June of 2015. Neil's record didn't stand for long, though. This year, there are two birders who have already passed his mark, and a third might still get there. I talked to Neil before hearing this news, and so I called him up. And he pointed out he actually got a late start and didn't get going in earnest until April. So uh, does this, uh, this doesn't stir any desire in you to start over again next year and actually start at January 1st? <laughs> um, when... When I started doing my big year, I, before that, I told I told people that I would never do a big year. The whole idea of it sounded crazy and uh, just kind of insane and a lot of work, a lot of travel. And I said I would never do that. And I ended up doing it. So uh, even though now I say I will never go back and do it again, uh, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> we are creatures that we do ourselves do not understand. Mm-hmm. If you want to hear more stories about crazy birding, Neil Hayward wrote a book about his big year. It's called Lost Among the Birds. Between its covers, you'll find much more about the odd and wonderful culture of birding. And hey, you might learn some things about individual birds, too. Hey, Sam. Hey. It's that time again. Uh, that time again? That sounds oh awful. God. <laughs> let's, let's be more excited about it. It's that time again. <laughs> Hit it, Taylor. Why do geese make bees? Does a bumblebee sneeze? Can a person eat trees? Can a polar bear freeze? Is a kidney stone kind of like a pearl in a clam? Well, I don't know. Ask Sam. All right, Sam. So I'm here with Taylor, and we have exciting news that someone called in to the Ask Sam hotline. I actually know this because she called my voicemail, and then I had to forward it to the Ask Sam hotline. Oh, did you? Oh, she did a deep dive and got your personal number. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that happened. But we stopped you before you listened to it. So this is fresh. This yes, is the first yeah, time. Yeah, I only heard the first little bit. All right. We'll see if you're ready. Here it goes. My name is Margo, and I am calling from Bethlehem, New Hampshire. I was getting off the interstate in Lincoln, and at the exit stop sign, there was a blue-winged teal on the ground in the triangle, and it looked very nervous, like looking around, and I I thought it would fly off when the car stopped, and it looked at me, but it didn't move, and I, I didn't know what was wrong with it. I thought maybe it couldn't fly, and then all of a sudden... A crow came down, like attacking it, squawking, and the teal flew off. And I watched this crow following this teal, and the teal was like zigzagging around in the air, and the crow was squawking and attacking at it, and then it landed, and the crow did the same thing again, came down at it, squawking, and I'd never seen a crow attacking a duck before. So I just wondered if this is some common thing that's happened before, if this is a really unusual event. Um, thank you. I hope you have an answer. Well, I'm glad she gave us a clue that a teal is a duck. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, did she say a duck or a dove? Uh, 
I, I thought she said duck, but you know, I guess we're gonna find out. <laughs> this is like a good moment to note that I'm like the worst birder ever. We, like we went out with Neil, we were looking at birds, and I was like, I was like, oh, what's that bird? And he's like, that's a robin. And it's like, what's that next? Oh, it's a, that's a sparrow. You know, like like basic birds uh, sometimes elude me. So uh, yeah, I have no idea. I don't. I just know crows are nasty. Like they were training them to track down terrorists. Because they have because fa- they have face recognition, they're really smart. If you Google attack crows, you'll find it. <laughs> I swear to God, because they can recognize faces and they'll like remember it. And they were thinking that that was a way, like if they showed crows pictures of terrorists, that they'd be able to identify them and track them down. So, do you think that this crow had a personal vendetta against or this was duck? trained? Maybe it wasn't personal, but it was someone else's vendetta against the duck. It was, it was like hired a duck killing crow. <laughs> All right, well, I better go Google attack crows. I should do another version of the theme where it's like, ask Sam and he'll ask someone else. <laughs> ask Sam and he'll call someone who's actually an expert. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Okay, Maureen, I found your guy. Well, uh, some of my research was funded by, uh, by the Army, and it was um, with the notion really not of hunting down Osama bin Laden, but really for trying to, um, to rescue people that were lost behind enemy lines or missing people for a variety of, of reasons. I don't think it went very far. So I was kind of right. You were kind of right. Yeah. So they they had they crows are really really good at recognizing faces. And this gentleman, is, this is John Marsluff. Uh, he is famous for a study that he's been conducting for years, in which they took a couple of crows and they sort of they you know captured them and just sort of pestered them, did annoying things that crows don't like. And they did this while wearing masks. One mask was a Dick Cheney mask, <laughs> and one mask was a caveman mask. The Dick Cheney mask was the control. They did not harass crows wearing the Dick Cheney mask. They harassed them using the caveman mask. They then released those crows out into the wild, and every year they'll like take an undergrad and make them wear the mask <laughs> and go out onto the campus. And the crows, not only did the original crows that had been harassed remember the masks, but they then taught the other crows. <gasps> Whoa! Yeah. So they would like spread the word like, that's a bad dude. Yeah, and they like caw at them and they'll sort of like swoop at them. That's so awesome. So he's the guy that we called about the the duck question. What was the crow doing to this duck? Um, and the answer is actually I found quite surprising, which is that um, crows are predators. They will seize upon, you know, really any opportunity to get food. And that's one reason they are so successful around us in either agriculture or in the city because they are flexible and they are able to uh, take advantage of new situations. And maybe it's garbage one day or a, a, a duck the next. They are always looking for that, um, that opportunity to, to get a meal. A crow will eat a duck? A crow will eat anything what? that it can get its crowy face on. So it was trying to kill the duck. It yeah. wasn't just harassing. Yeah, it wanted to eat it. Whoa! And so I asked him, like, how often are they are they hunting and you know being predators? He said maybe like five percent of their total calories will come from come from hunting and killing other animals, um, but that that's more during the nesting season because they'll kill baby birds all the time because they're basically defenseless. Um, and if you Google this, you can find all sorts of videos of crows trying to eat, especially baby ducks. Oh, what a terrible genre of YouTube video that is. <laughs> well, this took a depressing turn. Yeah. Who types that in? Crows <laughs> eating baby ducks. 
if you're out there, I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> but okay, so so then I asked him, what's the craziest thing you've seen a crow eating? Well, there's kind of categories. I, I did see him eat vomit <laughs> off the side of the wall oh, here, God. not too far from this radio station. In fact, that's always a, kind of the, the grossest thing I've seen them eat. Um, I've seen ravens eating molten plastic in dumps, uh, which are related to crows. What? And the the more interesting things are these larger prey items. They routinely will chase down pigeons or they will take advantage of um, situations where they can flush a bird into a window and then eat it after it's stunned or even um, harass a squirrel to the extent that it runs out in traffic and gets run over. And I thought at first... The question about the teal might relate to something like that. They were chasing a teal into traffic, and then they were going to scavenge it. But it sounds like they were just trying to to catch it straight out. Whoa. Crows. Cold-blooded. Wow. That creeps me out. Think about uh, Hitchcock's The Birds. Like if they're that smart that they could chase a squirrel out, if they if they attacked in numbers, they could start doing it to us. They just have to like, you know, swarm around your head, chase you into traffic. Boom. Very disturbing. Yeah. So you could have, like, crow assassins. <laughs> also probably trained somehow. <laughs> if you have a hit out on someone, that'd be, like, really... No one would ever find out. Can I just go backwards for a second to say that they should maybe be concerned about the Dick Cheney mask because he might shoot them in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and he probably would be a persona non grata at that point. Yeah, after you shoot a couple crows. He doesn't stand a chance. The crows are so smart. <laughs> they would learn so fast. So there you go. Fascinating. Yeah. Crows. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, and Jimmy Gutierrez, with help from Logan Shannon, Molly Donahue, Taylor Quimby, and Maureen McMurray. If you've got a question for our Ask Sam hotline, give us a call. We are always looking for rabbit holes to dive down into. The number is 603-223-2448. And don't forget to leave a number so that we can call you back. Also, head on over to OutsideInRadio.org where we've posted bird illustration coloring pages by Logan Shannon and Molly Donahue inspired by Neil Hayward's Big Year. If you print one out and color one in, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at OutsideInRadio. This week's episode featured tracks from Aaron Zim, Broke for Free, and The Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.